to another episode of Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast, where we talk about everything and anything medical human factors. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Burt Bouquet about the longstanding debate of qualitative versus quantitative data. We get into the details of how to determine optimal data type and experiment design to address the challenges human factors researchers are faced with when it comes to human factors evaluations, especially summative, i.e. validation studies. We speak about meeting regulatory needs and individual guidance requirements, as well as how the need for unifying approaches between med device and combination products for such validation studies becomes more and more apparent as med device development and healthcare devices and settings become increasingly more complex with the advancements in technology. Additionally, we provide a sneak preview of our next episode in which we discuss the importance of applying a collaborative approach between human factors and clinical, as well as the topic of use-related risk analysis and management within that model. And now, over to Bert. Hello, Bert. Thank you. Hi. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always. So, Bert is my former professor and thesis advisor of my graduate program in human factors from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And we've known each other for a very long time. Let's not date ourselves too much. Fair okay. statement. Fair statement. <laughs> and I used to be his teaching assistant in statistics. And Dr. Bouquet has a very specific talent that I deem he has. I don't think he agrees with me a lot, but I don't think anybody can teach statistics and evoke joy and fun out of it like he can. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never forget it. And um, with that being said, Bert and I have kept in contact over the years and we often discuss statistics around usability evaluations and particularly in the last year or two in the validation area, where there are certain requirements and guidances put out by the FDA in order to deem a product safe and effective from a usability standpoint. And so Bert and I have been discussing what the ideal or optimal model would look like in human factors validation studies from a statistical or just evaluation model to yield at the junction of being able to say it's safe and effective and why neither should be purely based on one or the other, meaning qualitative or quantitative data. So over the years, a lot of focus has been put on qualitative data when it comes to human factors validation studies. And with one side of the FDA putting out a guidance for medical device side, that focuses more on descriptive statistics and RCA root cause analysis from a qualitative data standpoint. And then with the drug combination product side of the FDA with their guidance kind of emulating that model, but then veering off in other areas like an inferiority statistical model. And so that's kind of where 
our discussions have been leading. And one of the things that led us to this is Bert and I had a conversation about how to do root cause analysis and actually yield the real root cause of a use problem or an event. And with that being said, Bert, if you could let the listeners in how we got there and what we talked about and from your perspective, like how root cause analysis encompasses so much more than we really are applying in human factors in that device development. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Like we've been talking is that I think when it comes to human behavior and human error, I think the problem is in part with the term root cause analysis, it implies that when we see a mistake, whether it's a user mistake, but where it involves people, that there is a single root cause. And of course, the more we learn about human error and how people interface with different systems, whether it's a medical device or a car or an airplane, human behavior and human error is multi-determined. And we've known this for quite some time. As we've discussed, I think it's as much about broadening the scope when we talk about doing these types of analyses that are grounded in sound psychological principles and not grounded in what has historically been really engineering principles. And so if you look historically at how we've done root cause analyses for human error, we've borrowed on the engineering side and saying, well, if it works great for engines and airplanes and whatever else it might be, any of these engineered systems, then we should be able to adapt this to humans. And the fact of the matter is we really can't because humans don't fail like engineered systems do. We fail differently. Based on that, when we start talking about why has someone made a mistake, we have to broaden where that comes from. If we're talking about an error, even if it's a system designed error, there are many different ways that happens. Yeah. And the interesting part about that is when we do validation studies, we have the mindset of, okay, there's an occurrence and then we have to explain the root cause of it. And if mm -hmm. we can explain and see that it's not design related, not that we're saying it's acceptable, but that's where we let a little loose on it. We're not pressing so much further because that's ultimately the goal to validate the system. We're not validating the user. So we're not really going beyond that. But while we might not have such an emphasis on quantitative data in validation studies, there are differences in between guidances in approach from a statistical point. So when we, for example, look at validation, we say, oh, in validation, 15 people is fine. And then descriptive statistics and just RCA, root cause analysis for the events, which is perfectly fine. I'm not necessarily saying that is wrong. I think there is a more optimal way to approach it with a little bit more robust quantitative aspect to it. But when we then look at guidances, for example, the comparative use human factor studies for combo products, now we're looking at a statistical model that is 
aiming at a inferiority model where you have a delta issue with the delta not being existent and you have to create the delta. Well, delta cannot be created without having a solid number of participants in it. Delta doesn't come from 15 people. Right. So with that, there is this disparity. It's almost as if it's applying a statistical model that aims more at efficacy proving than it is aiming at usability effectiveness. Right. So from that aspect, where do you think the differences are causing issues? And what is your kind of thinking on how to unify these approaches? I would say it's really a design issue from the standpoint of validating. So if I have a formulary drug that's on the market and device, that has already been through the process, and now I have another one that's coming on the market for the purpose of comparison. You want them to meet the same standard, but I would argue that your comparisons should be generated within the trials, if that's answering your question. Because like you say, you don't really have a comparison group with just 15. You have, at best, you have a small in design and small end designs really move forward by replication. And I think certainly in the pharmaceutical industry, just like everywhere else, replication is a very difficult thing to accomplish because it's very expensive. <laughs> the way we handled these designs many years ago, and I don't even want to say how long ago it was when I was working with pharmaceuticals and rats, you were able to have multiple replications, very small sample sizes, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, but you were replicating that very experiment multiple times. And so you had right. a lot of confidence in your findings. And I think that's really a struggle when you're dealing with such small samples and then using that as validation. Right. I've often thought that because these guidances don't really set out any particular model, any particular rules, or I should maybe say like the guidance doesn't set guidance on, that sounds kind of redundant and repetitive, but in them, there's no such thing as saying you have to design your study to do X, Y, Z. It just right. says validate your product. And people who have been doing this in the industry for so long, we understand pretty much how to get there because we've, as an industry, have taught each other, this is how you design a validation study in order to get at your critical tasks and in order mm -hmm. to prove that your risks and harms have been mitigated. And that's what you're aiming at. But what I always found interesting was that we don't really approach it like a hypothesis testing. Right. So we want to say that this product is safe and effective, and these are the measures, right? Shouldn't we have a unified approach that says, set your 
validation study up to prove X, Y, Z hypothesis, and it could be a general one, and ensure that you have X, Y, Z factors considered. And I understand standardized approaches are difficult when you have complexities such as every product being different, every user population coming with different skills and and, and performances and, and profiles. We perfectly understand that, but this is the discussion you and I always have is there is no real unified approach. And can we really say something is safe and effective if we don't prove significant confirmation through hypothesis testing? I think what you have is a multiple of approaches. You have two things to consider here for sure on the statistical side. You have quantitative value or significance and then qualitative as well. So ideally you would have both that would have qualitative significance, i.e. this is easy to use. I doing it the way I'm supposed to be doing it. And then you have quantitative, particularly on critical tasks. So if I have an auto injector and one of the critical tasks is I have to press it into a muscle, say the thigh, and I have to hold it for six seconds. That's a critical task or people actually holding it there for six seconds. How are they determining six seconds? So those things can be tested statistically with a proper design. And I think there is some room for standardization. And there's standardization for the qualitative side too. How easy is it to to hold? What are all the differences associated with it when you dial up the dose? Is it very readable? Is it readable to everybody? Do you have audible clicks? Is there any kind of haptic feedback? There's all these things that go into it that fall more in the qualitative side. But as I would see it, if I was looking for something kind of standard, I would want one to support the other. So... If people are not holding it down long enough, why not? If they're not pressing it hard enough, why not? That's the qualitative side when you ask that why. The statistical side is, are you actually getting what you think you're getting? Are they holding it for six seconds? Are they pressing with enough force? And I think there's room for standardization there. Like when we say, how do we test for differences? Well, I would want to know. I would have a control group. I would have a test group. And then you have multiple testing groups. How many different types of people are going to be using that particular drug or that particular device? We're talking about the very young, the very old, everybody in the middle, people with different infirmaries. Uh, Those are all things that have to be considered in the equation, but they can be compared against the standard. And then where do they fall from that standard? So speaking of the stats part, the guidance is heavily leaning on the Faulkner model from 2003. This is in Appendix B of the Human Factors Guidance from the FDA, the Applying Human Factors and Usability Engineering to Medical Devices from February 2016. In Appendix B, we're presented with determining sample sizes for human factors validation testing. And within the Faulkner model, the results suggest that a sample of 15 people is sufficient to find a minimum of 90% of an average and an average of 97 of all use problems. 
and then a sample of 20 was able to find a minimum of 95% with an average of 98, and then a sample of 30 users with a minimum of 97 found, and then having an average of 99. So in order to yield at significance, you need to get closer to a p-value and it's really difficult to show significance with a sample size of 15. And when I did my thesis, I remember you and I having this discussion of how many people I need to have in my experiment in order to make a valid, robust statement. And so I am always conflicted with this. And this is where I would love you to elaborate on this and from not just a statistical point, but also a robustness and a validity of your statement that you yield out of it. Even if you don't do hypothesis testing, but I really would like to understand why we are saying 15 is enough because that yields 90 and an average of 97, when really we should be aiming at 30 with minimum of 97 found and then having an average of 99. Yes, we are only talking about an average increase of 2%, but we are talking about an increase of 7% in minimum found. Right. So so asymptotic then, uh, baseline level of behavior. So at that point, people have kind of achieved a baseline. So if I say I'm going to train you on a task and I'm going to train you to asymptote, and at that point, I'm going to say that you have now trained to where you are consistently responding like you're supposed to. And over the years, teaching statistics and obviously supervising students and theses and dissertations and things like that, the question that always comes up is, how many people do I need? How many subjects do I need to run? How many participants do I need? And there are obviously statistical models that tell us what minimum numbers are. Right. You can can calculate the power. Yeah. Right. But there are many things that go into that. One of them is tell me about the strength of the manipulation. So a very strong manipulation can get by with fewer participants. We don't need as many people because we'll probably see a difference very early on. Case in point, I was trained in psychophysiology. And so if I wanted to see a change in heart rate, if I gave somebody a public speaking task, I would see a very robust change within five or six people. Uh, On the other hand, if I looked at something like reaction time task, then it's going to be a little bit more people to see it because it's not as powerful a manipulation. Coupled with that, tell me about what it is you're looking for. So some of the effects may be relatively nuanced and they won't really manifest themselves until you have a larger sample size. And so the idea behind 30, if we're talking about like a t-test where I'm comparing two groups or something like that, at that point, what we're saying is that the distribution is approaching normality. So that's why that 30 is a gold standard when I'm comparing two groups. Uh, So to answer the question, I would say that in some cases, 15 may be enough. In other cases, 30 won't be. If I'm looking for statistical significance and just as much if I'm looking at the variance accounted for. So what does my effect size look like? So I'm really accounting for these changes that I'm seeing. Then it's the more the better. And that's generally what we've told students in the past. But there's also the idea that there is some restriction placed on that and those restrictions are oftentimes money time 
available uh, participants. For my thesis, I was studying asthmatics. I had a very strict criteria for the type of asthmatic that was going to be used in the study. And so it was very difficult. I got to 30, but it took me a long time to get there. So there's a lot of determinants there, but to have just as a rule of thumb 15, I think that is certainly not going to work for everything. And that's what you and I have been talking about, like overall, not particularly just this point, but these are the things that we've been talking about when looking at these guidances and saying they were great first models or approaches. But as we progress and as complexities of devices increase and as technology advances and everything, I think our approaches should also be progressing. We should be evolving. We should be growing. We should be putting back into these guidances and approaches and models what we've learned over the last two decades. Yes. And with that, understanding exactly what you just said, sometimes 15 is enough, sometimes it isn't. So my general wondering, I think these guidances should be supplemented and should be looked at with having requirements in there that you calculate your power. I don't want to focus on one method. I don't want to say it has to be the calculation of power, but some kind of approach that you can say, yes, for us, 15 will be enough. For us, 30 will be enough. For us, 45 will be enough or whatever. But that additional input has to be supplemented in these guidances because I don't think it is necessarily okay and acceptable for a complex surgical invasive tool, device, diagnostic uh, system, whatnot, to have the same approach than a straightforward auto-injector. No, I don't think you can. I think there's a couple of things there that you touched on. And one of those is the word guidance. And, you know, (laughs) we kind of translate that right to, to safety. So everybody who opens their door as a business, manufacturing, things like that, have OSHA guidelines that they follow. So safety guidelines. One of the things we tell people in the safety industry is that if all you're doing is following OSHA's guidelines, then You've done the bare minimum you need to do to open your doors, but it doesn't mean you're safe. And so if I take that 15 as a minimum, say, okay, here's our guidance. 15 is the minimum number in order to start the process. So that's my starting point. That's not my end point. And I think because within that, you're also having to consider the user. Are they naive users? Are these people who have been trained over many years? I mean, they've been using a device for many, many years. The complexity of the device, and I think as the field has changed, more and more people are, in effect, treating themselves at home. Things that you would have gone to a physician for not too long ago are now being done at home. People are monitoring very complex biological signals at home. Just think how our monitoring of blood glucose has changed over the years. What is the medical guidance for that now? Where years and years ago, I can remember people testing once a day. We know that's not enough now. 
And so as the complexity of what people are using changes, then I think how we go about evaluating that also has to change accordingly. And I do believe like from a guideline standpoint, if I look at this just like that, that this is your starting point, not your end point, then you can really start to get at validation. I mean, validation, as you know, psychometrically has a very specific definition. You know, when we talk about validity, we talk about reliability and things like that. But certainly from a device standpoint and from a drug standpoint, they have their own assessments for it. I kind of take issue with the, you know, when I, when I hear guideline, that to me is just that it's a guideline, but it is not by any stretch an endpoint. That's a good point because it is a guidance. It's a guideline. Mm -hmm. And this speaks to another can of worms that we can't even discuss in this round today, (laughs) but that speaks also to the can of worms that human factors guidances are written for human factors experts. They're not written for the engineer, the quality person, the safety person, the regulatory person, the industrial designer, the XYZ, anybody in the R&D team who isn't human factors. And so the human factors person will look at this and say, for this particular setup, you should really consider like a sample size of 30 or whatnot. And that's why we're having this discussion of like, how do we get at a unified approach and how do we progress and evolve in these guidances with the requirements within them? to address the evolution and the advances in healthcare and medical innovation over the last two decades. Because bringing it back to that point, these are guidances. And here's the problem with that. That's what they're going to adhere to. Mm -hmm. I can tell you if a client comes to me for a validation study, they're going to say 15. They're not going to allow me to do 30. They're going to say, we don't have the budget for that. And it's not required. The guidance says 15. And I'm going to look at it and say, yes, but your device is really complex. And that's really not going to yield you what you want to say from a safety and effectiveness. And they will counter it with saying, yes, but we'll conduct the residual risk analysis and we'll look at the events occurred during the validation. We'll do the disposition of the use errors and we'll roll it into the residual risk and we will come to the conclusion of whether the benefits of the product outweigh the risks, right? And that's sufficient for them. But from the scientist point, from the researcher background, the human factors background, you know that that validity is not robust enough, but it is meeting the requirement. Right. So the problem is, yes, exactly what you said. These are guidances. And just like with OSHA, if you're adhering to it, you're doing the bare minimum. So in order for manufacturers to not just do the bare minimum, these guidances have to advance. They have to. So looking at that and then looking at the differences in some of the approaches. And this is something that you and I discussed where we said, we really have to rethink our entire approach to this. So I think there's a couple of different ways to rethink that model. You say, well, you have 15 people. If that's all we're going to pay for, 
then now you have to figure out how can I do what I want to do with a smaller sample size? Because the ideal way to do this would be obviously if you have a comparison group, right? That's kind of the standard if we really think about that. I have a comparison group and I have my control group and then I have my experimental group. And so I look at the differences between those and however you want, however those have to look. So if I have a group of experienced users versus a group of novice users who've never used it before, what does that look like? Or if I have a group of experienced users and now they're using a generic device, do I see any differences there? That would be the standard model. Another way to approach this is, are the things I'm seeing reliable, whether it's good or bad, and testing those 15 over more than one trial. And so do I see the same thing over and over again? So if I do, or if they improve, then now I know, okay, if those mistakes or errors tend to go away with use, now I can look at this from a different standpoint. We may need a little bit more than just pick it up at the drugstore, bring it home, or just have a vendor sitting in the room while a surgeon's using a particular device. We may need more training. So that maintains those 15 participants, but in effect, it grows your sample size accordingly. So if I have three trials, now I technically have 45 participants. Not unlike what we've had to do in aviation for certain things, because it's very expensive to do studies in aviation. So how do we get around that? Well, one of the ways we get around that is we use within subjects designs and we test them more than once. Because it costs a lot of money to put an airplane up in the air. It costs a lot of money to pay a pilot to fly it. And <laughs> so it costs a lot of money to pay controllers to come in and do studies. Oh, yeah, God. It, that reminds me of our ATC study where yeah, we had as, all those as, controllers as, in. <laughs> exactly, as you well know. So even at the FAA, if we were going to do a study with actual controllers, then those controllers had to be paid at controller pay. Oh, and we yeah. had to pay to backfill their positions on the boards. So you're really paying doubles. They were not going to say, hey, bring 150 air traffic controllers in here and run them through the simulator. It's not the way it worked. It was more like, and we'll pay for eight. They're unique characters. I yes, mean, the they interviews are. I conducted when we did the FAA study, yep. the ATC guys that came in, just the sheer uniqueness of their personalities alone like was almost a variable it's like anything right there's a certain type of person who becomes an air traffic controller there's a certain type of person who becomes a pilot a surgeon but yeah there you go so there's a lot of consistency if we look at if we look at personality traits and things like that if we look at where they lie in terms of not just intelligence but the types of intelligence so they are unique but The thing is that we had very much the same type of problem in that you had a limited amount of money and availability of people to do those studies with. And so having said that, then now you say, how do I make this more robust? How do I make whatever I find here more meaningful and generalizable outside of this particular cohort right here. You said earlier, like you tackled it by applying a within subject model. Repeated measures. 
repeat-up measures. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? So we think about a typical experiment. We'll have a very simple one. We'll have a control group of people, and then we'll have a second group, the control group, and to make this very simple, we're giving them a drug. And so the control group would just get vehicle. If it's an injectable, all they would get would be saline. Our control group would get the actual drug. And so I may have 15 in one, 15 in the other, and then I'm going to see, does it work? So if someone's getting a preparation for headaches, does it alleviate the headache symptoms? That's all that is. Now, in that scenario, I have 30 people, so I've got to have 15 in each group. If I only have access to 15 people, I'm going to say what I'm going to do is I'm going to test these people twice. So at random, they will get either the drug or the placebo in one condition, and then in the other condition, they'll get whatever they didn't get before, and I'll make that comparison. The net effect of that is that while I've only tested 15 people, I've tested them twice. So that gives me an effective sample size of 30. And I'm very much oversimplifying it because I make it sound like it's easy. It's not necessarily easy. And it also has its own statistical nuances that have to be dealt with as well. But it is a way to increase power and it's a way to increase efficiency in a very widely used design in the behavioral sciences where we test people over and over again. For instance, if I want to look at the effectiveness of a particular type of training, so I may test people prior to the training, then expose them to the training, and then test them again to see if it worked. That's a classic uh, repeated measures or within subjects design. So you speak that this is a very typical model in behavioral science and human factors is behavioral science. I would Mm -hmm. love for you to share when you say within subject and repeat up measures, how could we apply that to medical device testing? Certainly in the medical device, if I'm looking at human factors, then, you know, I'm testing whatever it is I'm looking for to assess people on. So certainly with a particular device, you're going to have critical tasks that you'll be looking for. What I would be looking for or any mistakes that repeat themselves from one trial to another trial. And like I said earlier, I would be looking to see, do people improve from one trial to another trial? And that would be one of the ways where you could use within subjects or repeated measures design to look at these, you know, to call it validation, but to just see. And then you can apply that to multiple types of cohorts. That would be one kind of standard that I would look for. How do people behave from one trial to another? Because at the end of the day, regardless of what I'm talking about or what the platform is, aviation, medicine, whatever, you're really looking at behavior, whether you're looking at how people behave using a particular system or device, how they interface with it. But you're really saying, does this interface cause people to behave in a particular way. And when we talk about an error, an error is nothing more than a behavior. That's it. It's a maladaptive behavior, but it's still a behavior. So if I do something right, 
if I'm correct from A to B to C to D, then the behavior or whatever generated that behavior led me to proper behavior along the way. If I've made a mistake along the way, then now the question is, is what you do with your root cause analysis. What generated that particular behavior? That's all. And if we put it in that context, I think it makes it a little bit more relatable. Right. And that made me think of something really critical. As technology advances and devices become more and more complex, this thinking has settled in that labeling and instructions for use have become the pivotal point. But contradictory to what we already know, because we already know human behavior. And this is where I love the correlation to what you just said. Human behavior, at the end of the day, a use error is human behavior. Yeah. Right? So just maladaptive. Exactly. So we already know from other industries, from life, from watching humanity evolve and and progress, nobody reads those things. There's a subset of the human population that has a tendency to inform themselves with what they're using, right? right? And there is the majority of them who don't. Because what we as humans do is we use something that's called transfer, Mm -hmm. mental model transfers of knowledge from similar actions, similar behaviors, similar designs, similar behaviors of functions on, let's in this particular case, let's say devices. So we already know that, for instance, and we don't even have to go into the home environment, we can just leave it at the healthcare professional. We already know that the healthcare professional, and let's keep it simple, okay, let's say auto injector, right? Mm -hmm. We already know that they've used dozens, hundreds, thousands. If I'm going to design something with a novel function in it, And I'm going to say, hmm, I don't want to use the standard function mechanism, which in this case, let's say whatever the mechanism is, a push button, a pressing down, whatnot. I want to design X, Y, Z. Now, when we speak to human behavior and use errors and use problems, we already know that instructions for use are something that are often discarded, not even looked at, ignored. Are you because they're unreadable 90% of the time? (laughs) Hey, you haven't read mine yet. (laughs) But to your point, yes, you can create the greatest instructions for use. The human behavior is already set. You already have a mental model looking at something. So now you're trying to basically alter human behavior with Mm -hmm. your device which is just such a gutsy move to say, oh, yeah, let me go ahead and design a device, put a novel function on it, and then basically alter the human behavior with the instructions for use, which I already know from behavioral sciences background in everything that we do. And you could probably speak to FAA, to aviation side as well. We already know things like that don't work as we want them to work. And with that being said, 
bringing it back to my point, these guidances were always approached with the worst case scenario. Worst right. case scenario being you don't read anything, you just go for it. But when we talk about repeated measures within subject studies, basically what we would be saying is, yeah, worst case scenario is the first one, right? Mm -hmm. But then let's also look at the improvement that is achieved by repeated exposure. Yeah. And that's the big difference that we're going at. And I perfectly understand that the complexities of devices vary and that it may not be a great approach to think, yeah, worst case scenario for a surgical tool, like, oh, well, if something happens, it happens, but let's look at how much better they get over the time of use. That would actually make a case for saying, okay, well, this particular device requires XYZ design change, or you're right. going to insist on XYZ training or whatever. But at the end of the day, at what point do we all get together and say, Devices have become too complex. Things have become too complex. You can't instructions for use your way out of it anymore. But you also can't rely only on giving training or demos, right? So, right. yeah, we can post videos on company websites and all that. And we can rely and appeal to the morals of healthcare and ethical behaviors of healthcare professionals, which predominantly they are, they will inform themselves with, sure. with these things. But we are ignoring the high stress environments like pandemic, for instance, great example. Mm -hmm. Would that have been a great environment to put out a novel device and then rely on people reading instructions for use when they're working 24, 48, 72 hour shifts with PPE that like physiologically stresses them and they're sleep deprived, they're stressed, they're mentally at their maximum capacity. And right. so I do have that question of where do we say, okay, now we have to look at a different approach. So how do you think we can change the mindset of that? Because remember, Every manufacturer is just going to go by the bare minimum. I'm not speaking badly about manufacturers. You have every no. right to do that. If that's the requirement and you fulfill it, then you've done your job and that's good. But let's remind ourselves that if the guidance says minimum of 15, everybody's going to do minimum of 15. If the guidance says worst case scenario, everybody's going to do worst case scenario. Right. If the guidance doesn't speak to a within subject repeated measures statistical model, then they're not going to do that. People so, aren't going to do it. You touched on a bigger, the bigger issue there. What I would say is, are we designing this technology, whatever the technology is, are we really designing it with the end user in mind? Something as simple, I take eye drops because I have high pressure in my eyes every night. I'm Ooh. supposed to put in one drop in each eye. Okay. So. Do you get the aftertaste too? I do not. Most of the time oh, because lucky. I miss. But that, that aside... <laughs> The, and the effectiveness of that isn't really working. <laughs> but that aside, when I opened up the box with the drops the first time and I took out the instructions, I wanted to look at the contraindications, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I have 20-20 vision corrected with my glasses. I couldn't read it. It was too small. And I thought, that's ironic that you're going to put out eye drops have the instructions be too small. So obviously this person's probably got some visual deficits, yet the type is too small to read. 
<laughs> so they're obviously not thinking about the end user. And I think this is what we see. What I would say is if you have a novel aspect to a device, is that novel aspect actually trying to fix a problem? Why is it there in the first place? If it's there to fix right. a problem that, hey, this is going to be easier to use. You're going to learn this quicker. It's more compatible with what you're doing. But if it's just there to set you apart for one reason or another, if you say we've built a better mousetrap, that's one thing. If you're just building a different mousetrap for the sake of building a different mousetrap, then you haven't really helped. And that speaks and, to a really good point. Sorry to interject there, but mm -hmm. that I often discuss with peers is, for instance, 510Ks. That means if you're filing a 510K for a medical device, that means that a similar device is already out there. Mm -hmm. So how does your device differentiate itself from the device right. that's already out there? And to your point, does it solve an issue that the similar device has? How are you, quote unquote, better? And what is the advantage of using your device? And this right. speaks to more than just the usability of it. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, we can say, if we want to go the drug route again, the efficacy of the drug would be better or the drug is better. And that's wonderful, all that. Sure. But let's keep it with a device, right? So if you're going to put that out there, are you solving for something that has been a persistent issue with the similar device? Right. Or are you improving the patient quality of life because you've added ABC to it, right? And now that you've added that to it, how do you ensure that the user not only uses it properly and correctly, but right. understands the advantage and can yield an advantage out of it by using it like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. So to your point, this is a bigger approach question. Yeah, it is an approach question. And I think there's probably a philosophical undertone to that as well. But I'm sure most people that are building and changing devices and things like that are doing it because they're trying to make it better in one way or another, whether it's better for the patient, better for the medical professional, whoever it might be. But at the end of the day, you should have your validation trials to fall back on. Those are the things that you should be able to look at and say, okay, is there some way we can change this to address this problem? Whatever that problem might be. And those are questions that are data-driven. Whatever that data might look like, whether that data is qualitative or quantitative, at the end of the day, they are data-driven questions. And so there's no real substitution for that. Right. You can't yield a statement to safety, effectiveness, efficacy, anything, right. whether usability related or drug efficacy related, mm -hmm. you can never yield a robust statement without having the data to back it up. Right. And to our original point, qualitative or quantitative, I think to bring this beautiful conversation to a conclusion in our discussion, what we really are trying to say is as everything advances, as humanity advances, not just medical 
innovation and technology, but as we advance and progress and evolve and more and more understand the human behavior and how Mm -hmm. we work and how we think. So as we are learning all these things and as technology becomes more and more complex, what we're really saying is these guidances are exactly that. They're guidances. Yes. They also need to evolve. And what we're saying is you can't just rely on qualitative data and you can't just rely on quantitative data. But we also can't just say, here's your standard 15 for this, for your quantity, and this is what we want to see in your RCA. Yes, you can suggest a model that allows, for instance, an FDA reviewer to oversee it more comprehensively and efficiently. What we're saying is every device is different. Every case is different. And as the human factors expert in the round, you really should be looking at all the things that we just said, the powers within subject, repeated measures, and all these things, worst case scenario, novel features versus similar products, and what is your gain out of the product and all these. So the approach to human factors, engineering, design, research, and then ultimately validation also has to evolve. And I think that's where now, after so many years in this profession in this science, applying it to med device development. I think that's where I'm more and more going with my thinking is that we are evolving, but we're not evolving our approach. We are evolving by putting additional guidances out there for X, Y, Z and saying this and saying that and putting a requirement here and putting a requirement there. But we're really yeah. not aiming at the root cause. And that is that we have to rethink our approach in order to yield the robust statements that we're looking to make when we're done with validation studies i.e. we're saying this product is safe and effective and the benefit to the patient outweigh the risks presented in validation. Right. Yeah. And that is it. You've done as good a job as you can understanding what the risks are, what the potential hazards are, the benefits uh, of use, et cetera. You're really saying that you've assessed it from as many angles as you can. And here's what we believe you need to know, because ultimately you're passing this on to other people to use. Right. Um, and, and to use, in many cases, unsupervised. Right. Yes. So, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that's a really great ending point. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us today, Bert. Thank Always you, Heidi. Lovely. Enjoyed it. Talking to you about statistics and... The age-old question of which statistical model is the best for what scenario. And uh, looking forward to have you on in the future again and discuss this further. I'd love to. Thank you, Heidi. And now, a little sneak preview of our next episode, in which we discuss not just the integration of the human factors engineering process and its user-centered approach into the medical device and combination product and development process, but how doing so in a collaborative approach between clinical and human factors teams has almost become a necessity as the impact of continuous adaptation 
and evolution within the medical device in combination PDP has not been exclusive to the HFE process, but instead also has affected the clinical evaluation process and its requirements. As we all know, integrating the human factors engineering process and its user-centered approach into the medical device and combination product development process has been an ongoing challenge for its respective industries and human factors practitioners within it for decades. Yet despite continuous process adaptation and evolution of the HFE process, as well as the introduction of standards and health authority guidelines, the early integration of a risk-based and user-centered approach within the development and design process remains an ongoing practical challenge occupying the minds of most. Human factors minds, I should say. And while human factors as a scientific discipline remains constant in its principles and foundation, technology, tools, and materials have evolved and directly impacted the demands and expectations on the HFE process. Intensifying the challenge of a combined risk-based and user-centered design approach is the evolution of healthcare itself, as such has introduced new types of medical devices with the widespread adoption of computerization, further adding yet another layer of complexity to an already complex environment. And while U.S. FDA aimed to address this with the issuing of variance draft guidances, the European Medical Device Directive did as well with the publication of its new MDR in 2017, in which it introduced an increased demand on usability requirements within the clinical evaluation process. One of the European Commission's purpose for the MDR was to ensure transparency and data sharing between teams during development, with the goal of further increasing patient safety, of course. Accordingly, language changes within the MDR now require manufacturers of lower-risk class products to provide clinical evidence directly from the patients and or its users, where previously they might have been able to provide such via literature review thus now creating a greater burden on clinical evaluation for such manufacturers. And as with such, the European Medical Device Directive also underwent an evolution addressing usability and its associated risks. It may be therefore why it seems that such a collaborative approach between clinical and human factors teams almost has become a necessity to also ensure MDR compliance. With the new MDR publication and its emphasis on the importance of use-related risk identification, assessment, and data-based evaluation of such within the clinical evaluation process, it also introduces clinical teams to new use-related risk challenges as well. And while MDR usability requirements are evaluated during human factors summative usability studies, such is done predominantly without any interaction between human factors and clinical teams, 
missing out on opportunities to harmonize usability and clinical evaluation efforts and collect more robust data sets in which usability and clinical evaluation activities take into consideration one another's requirements and goals. Likewise, clinical risks are evaluated and mitigated predominantly with clinical data, with no input from human factors teams. Despite residual risk and risk-benefit determination being equally dependent on HFE's use-related data collected during human factors usability studies, addressing the evaluation and validation of risks associated with intended use, user, and use environment. Here again, the lack of interaction between clinical and human factors teams proves as a clear disadvantage for both. In particular, the MDR requires clinical evaluation to adequately address the qualitative and quantitative aspects of clinical safety with clear reference to the determination of residual risks and undesirable side effects to provide confirmation of the relevant safety and performance requirements related to such. Now, this intertwining of requirements is again amplified, for example, in one of the MDR's key technical documents, the instructions for use. As such, provide the essential information to the final user. Now, as the IFU is based on input from clinical evaluation data regarding safety, it also describes residual risks and any undesirable side effects and includes these identified residual risks based on the analysis of, you guessed it, not just clinical risks, but also use-related risks. This again demonstrates the intertwining of usability and clinical and shows the dependency to one another, as the clinical evaluation is expected to clearly answer use-related questions, such as, is the device to be used by healthcare professionals or lay users? Does the IFU provide all the appropriate and or relevant information for the intended user? Has the manufacturer taken into account the technical knowledge, experience, education, training, and use environment where applicable, and the medical and physical conditions of intended users? Is any training for users required as a risk control measure? And if not, is this justified with respect to the risk management file and the clinical evaluation? When looking for a direct link between usability and clinical requirements within the MDR, its annex even describes contents of its technical documentation, which you guessed it, can be taken directly from the human factors or usability engineering file, which include a definition of the intended users, a description of which other devices the device can and or should be combined with and or connected to, and its tests and test results. So this further substantiates that measures to evaluate and validate these clinical requirements could be merged into one shared 
study protocol, collecting data for both clinical and usability requirements. Furthermore, as industry is increasingly learning the nuances and advantages of real-world over simulated use data, a convergence of HFE and clinical efforts has become unavoidable. And the demand for guidance on how to execute such convergence and collaborate amongst HFE and clinical teams has soared. Our discussion highlights how applying such a collaborative approach between HF and clinical efforts could actually permit for such real-world data by allowing for hybrid activities between the two specialties, potentially conducting studies addressing evaluation of both clinical and use-related risks, and with such potentially even optimizing residual and benefit risk analyses and subsequently enhance HFE and clinical evaluation processes and reporting of such. Moreover, it would provide for a more robust data set being available to the manufacturer to use for advanced device development, as well as potential further risk mitigation. Our discussion also hopes to aim to continue to push the discussion itself amongst human factors practitioners and regulatory and clinical experts and provide a framework for a collaborative approach between human factors and clinical teams. And so I hope you are super excited and looking forward just as much as I am to yet another great discussion next time on Safe and Effective, where Helena and I will dig a little deeper into this collaborative approach and discuss its benefits and ultimately how a possible integration of such could look like. I look forward to you enjoying our discussion and sharing your many thoughts with us on it. All right, folks, that's it for today. Great discussion as always. And please do share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion. And please do support the show, leave us a five-star review, and tell all your friends about us and consider supporting the Human Factors Cast Network on Patreon. Links to all of our socials and our websites are in the description of this episode. Thank you again, Bert, for being on the show today. Always lovely to talk to you, especially when it comes to our favorite topic of statistics. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Merzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX Research. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay safe and effective. <music>